Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services. And I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hey. And third year psychiatry resident, Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. Hey, Aaron. Hey, everybody. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR School of Medicine. Well, on this episode, we're going to talk about folks without houses, the unhoused, and the innovative programs that are involved with outreach, outreaching to them. And to do that, we have with us Dr. Matthew Perry. Dr. Matt Perry is a third-year family medical resident at Brown University who lives in Poconocet, Wapanoag, and Narragansett land, also known as Providence, Rhode Island. Hope I did well on those words. Uh, their primary clinical interests include working with populations who are unhoused, use drugs, or otherwise operate at social margins. They have previously worked as a community health worker and community organizer at the intersections of incarceration, immigration, and public health. Thank you, Matt, for joining us on this episode of Let's Get Psyched. Thank you for having me. I, I just want to kind of start things, get the ball rolling with, can you give a description of some of, and a taste and a flavor of some of the innovative outreach uh, efforts that you are involved in? Sure. So I think there's a move, uh, growing recognition around the country, at least in the U.S., that traditional clinical settings and traditional clinical setups are not necessarily accessible to people who uh, aren't stably housed. Um, and so there are a lot of new approaches, or some of which have been around for a long time or have been done by other people, uh, to develop alternative modes of care. And one of those that I uh, engage in is outreach-based care. So providing medical care, either at a drop-in center or just doing walking outreach uh, rounds on the street. What kind of preparation or what kind of, um, what kind of skills is needed to do this type of work? It's a great question. I think the most important singular thing is relationship building. So I got into this work because I was working as a, uh, doing community organizing work while also in medical school and was introduced to some case managers and outreach workers and people who did harm reduction work locally who were looking for a doctor to, you know, be out with them. Um, and so I think establishing trust and establishing rapport um, and being willing to meet people where they're at is the most important thing. Although there are also definitely some specific technical skills that come into play, wound care and wound assessment, psychiatric crisis management, which I'm sure you will all do a lot of, um, and, and things like care coordination and resource management, um, as well as things that maybe more typically would fall in the realms of case management and social work, like signing someone up for a housing listserv or getting them a cell phone. Um, you mentioned you would do rounds on the street. What does that look like? Yeah. So for example, um, every Wednesday morning, uh, there's a House of Hope outreach worker named Megan Smith who does walking rounds. We meet at a McDonald's uh, in one of the areas where a lot of houseless folks uh, are allowed to be in Providence. And when, when I'm with a case manager, she knows a lot of the people who hang out in that neighborhood. And so I walk with her and, you know, she'll either I'm just making myself known, building relationships, or she'll say, you know, so-and-so has a nasty abscess on their arm or so-and-so has been trying to get into detox or so-and-so um, is having really bad lower extremity edema and they've agreed to meet a doctor today. 
Um, and then alternatively, it would be like we would set up a table at the intersection of, you know, two streets every Tuesday afternoon so people know that we're there if they need anything. Matt, is the experience more fun than being in a white office with off-white fixtures and staring at a computer screen for nine hours? Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, I think that there it can be there's a, there's a lot going on um and it can be a little chaotic but i think within that chaos there's a lot of room for fun and i think people recognize if you're trying to meet them where they're at in a way that's respectful and uh longitudinal and reliable um and so you might have access into what people's lives are like in a way that you might not get in the clinic I think that's such a big issue uh, with with outreach with homeless folks and and, and uh, unhoused folks. Okay, well, can you can you say a little bit about the differences between saying homeless folks, which I this is the term I typically use, but I've noticed that you're using things like unhoused and without houses. Can you talk a little bit about that? Totally. I think I don't. I I wouldn't go so far as to say that homeless that using the term a homeless person is a, is a bad term to use, but I like the terms unhoused and houseless for a couple of reasons. I think to use the term home implies that like someone can't build home wherever they are. In reality, out on the street or in a shelter or wherever, people are building home wherever they go with the tools that they have and the resources available to them. And I really like specifically the term unhoused because in parallel with other terms like marginalized, it implies that to be unhoused is something that the state has done to you, right? It is a, an action that has been done to remove housing from somebody um, because there are, you know, there are lots of examples of cultures and societies where there are, there are there is no such thing as homelessness because people are not allowed to be removed from their home. So I think having that frame is a constant potent reminder that this is not a static thing that is on that is like this person's fault or that is just like who this person is, but it's something that has been done to them. Mm -hmm. And in your work, can you just talk more about that, about this phenomenon of being the action being done to them? Can you talk more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think you all touched on it uh, with your previous episode with Chris Walker. I, th I think that when you reach a certain level of social or economic or political vulnerability, um, your power over your own situation it can really be minimized. And, you know, I think one thing we were talking about a little bit before the show is the ways in which folks are forced to work at the margins. And that can be because of a criminal record or because of an immigration status or because of debt. Um, but all of a sudden there's a legal vulnerability that prevents someone from retaining certain resources that would enable them to stay housed, for example. You know, whether they don't have access to a legal system that works for them, they don't have, have access to, you know, inherited money or a, social, or a meaningful social safety net. And so we are able to evict them or to kick them out of shelter or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So when you see these folks on the on the street, what are some of the top things that you prescribe that other doctors don't or won't? What a good question. Um, I think that the probably the, the big two, well, one needles, we prescribe needles. Um, and I think, you know, uh, the other big piece of this conversation that we haven't named yet is the idea of harm reduction. Um, and I think you all have talked about harm reduction previously, but the, the way that I'm using the term is harm reduction understands that 
what a psychiatrist or a primary care doctor might typically think is, is a, is sort of quote unquote medical optimization for a person isn't feasible. Right. So for someone who has, um, uh, an abscess, but has an active fentanyl addiction, getting hospitalized might not be feasible for them because of fear of withdrawal. Um, and so a harm reduction approach would be, okay, even if I think the safest thing is for you to go to the emergency room, and I'm going to counsel that and document that I think you should go, if that's not something that's going to happen for a variety of reasons, I will instead prescribe you oral antibiotics and check on you in three days, because that's sort of the best we can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, I was just thinking about the uh, free clinic that I used to manage as a resident at UCR. And uh, I manage specifically the psychiatric department of the free clinic in Riverside. Um, And our big mission really had to do was very psychiatrically oriented and like our mental health disorders require management like chronic management so we were all about getting them into a clinic where they could see someone regularly the same person over and over again they have stable care or you know seeing what resources they have if they're able to sign up for health insurance that sort of thing so yeah that's that's really interesting I mean obviously you know there's different acuities or different things that um I don't know do you have any anything like that your sort of focus in your street rounds is it harm reduction would you say i think that the the approach and one that you know i work with a few case managers including uh my partner claire who's a a social worker at house of hope which is a a local housing agency and i think that the frame really is responding to self-stated needs of community um and i think especially with folks who don't have housing often whom are engaging in illicit economies that might you know infer judgment onto them like sex worker or drug use or drug dealing we it's really easy for us as medical professionals to either consciously or or subconsciously decide that they can't really make their own decisions for what's best for them and in psychiatry that's a particularly loaded topic because competence and capacity is something you all are constantly evaluating but i think as best we can i think the ultimate approach and the and the approach that gets you the most trust and longitudinal relationships, which is something that you were mentioning is so important in psychiatry's like long-term management is to start with what does someone say is the most important thing to them right now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So that, that evokes for me, the idea that we, we had a little bit discussed where, where we have this like kind of adage, um, whatever the patient doesn't want, do that. And it seems to be, I don't know where it came from, but it seems to be pretty common around psychiatric inpatient versus outpatient triage. So I haven't heard that personally. So, okay. But you've, I think you've probably heard similar based on conversations I've had with you. Let's see if, let's see if I, if I kind of uh, ring a bell with what I'm saying. So, so let's say a patient has some like three examples. We let's say a patient has borderline personality disorder. There's some evidence that, um, folks with borderline personality disorder maybe don't benefit much from psychiatric hospitalization and should their psychiatric hospitalization should be really limited. And so there's kind of a knee jerk. Okay. If they have borderline personality disorder and they want to be in the hospital, then don't put them in the hospital if they are. And then there's the folks who are unhoused 
or thought of as malingering, which are often the same crowd. It's it, they're, they're called the word that I think is, is not at all compassionate that's used as often, or the phrase is two hots in a cot. They want to be in the hospital. Therefore, don't let them be in the hospital because the thought is that the hospital is so ugly that anyone who wanted to be in it uh, shouldn't be in it. And then the people who don't want to be in the hospital, the thought is, oh, they have poor insight or they're psychotic or they want to continue with their suicide attempt. Therefore, um, therefore, don't therefore put them where they don't want to go, put them in the hospital. Um, and I, I've heard this throughout different places I've trained, and I, I have to confess or say that I think there is some logic to it, um, but it's obviously got huge problems, and I don't, I've never talked about those. So, Tosha, what, what is, is that ringing a bell now? Yeah, yeah. Um, like for the borderline patient, for instance, you wouldn't want to set up um, that sort of pattern, that behavior, that behavior. Um, yeah, that makes sense. I just haven't heard it like such a blanket statement, like just give the patient whatever they don't want. That that seems to run counter with uh, your philosophy, Matt. Does it not about meeting the client where they're at and and uh, and almost engaging them in a conversation of what can reduce harm and um, what some of their choices that, that you can kind of provide for them as far as resources. Absolutely. And I think it's a different frame. I think, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist. I did spend some time in the psych emergency room as a med student. And I think the, 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 the frame that's being thrust upon you all in triage is impossible, right? Because you have these very specific criteria that people do or do not meet, which dictates what happens to them. And it's, there's a lot of immediacy to that in my experience, but my frame is like, I'm trying to meet somebody in their goal over the course of hopefully more than weeks, months, years, if possible. Um, and whatever my goal is for somebody along the course of years, it's not going to work unless they want that, right? Because you can make a short-term decision that's against a person's will in the hospital, but ultimately, if it's not what they want, they that term of certification or look will end, right? Unless they're going to become permanent wards of the state, which only happens in extreme cases. And so, if they're not on board, if they don't, or at least don't, they don't come on board at some point point in that process. At the end of it, have you built a relationship that allows you to help them continue to get to where they want to go? You are listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR, and uh, we are talking with Matt Perry, Dr. Matt Perry. He's involved with a lot of innovative programs to outreach the homeless folks. He's a, he's a physician that um, is, is, can be unconventional at times, but it's working. That's why we're having him on the show and we're enjoying this discussion. That face, I don't know if for listeners, that face that Matt made, what, what did that mean? It was, how would you describe that face? It was like, a, uh, I don't know. Well, is it, I mean, is it, I think it's probably, it, maybe it's, it's working some, somewhat a little better. I think that what we do know is that the current hospital system isn't working for folks who don't have housing. Um, and, and within, and I should specify the hospital system within the context of the broader like social service net that we have for people in this country is not working. I think maybe it's working in the sense that like I'm building relationships with people um, and occasionally someone gets housed, but you know, not to sugarcoat it, like what happens on a day-to-day -day and week-to-week -week basis to people who are living, specifically living on the street, but generally housing unstable is, is usually pretty tragic and pretty rough. Matt, I, uh, I find it 
surprising and highly offensive that you might suggest that the American healthcare system is, is not working well. Uh, that, that's a radical statement and one that we, we do not stand by. I wish someone had told us eight years ago when we decided to do this. Yeah. Uh, so, so on those lines, um, unhoused folks knocking at the door of the psych hospital the thought that we're kind of getting at behind the thought behind the two, two, two hots and a cots phraseology and the frequent flyer phraseology that are used is how dare these, these folks seek housing. Um, and the question there, I mean, I, I first want to just get a, a plug in for the Elizabeth Bradley book, the American healthcare paradox, which basically states that, uh, there was like a broad sweeping assessment of different countries and their healthcare return on investment. And um, that countries that invest, that have higher ratios of social services spending to healthcare spending do better in basically almost all measurements of healthcare that were used. Um, and I don't know, Matt, if you enjoyed that kind of realization as much, I know Matt read the book as well. And um what do you think about that? And how does that relate to the availability of shelters and the problems with shelters? Why are people asking to be in a psych hospital? Right. Well, I mean, I think that the frame of someone who, who is, there's just, it's such a different frame when you're meeting somebody in the street. Like I've never on like a, on a, on a outreach trip, tried to convince someone not to go to the hospital. And I can say that every case manager I've ever worked with and all the doctors who do outreach have had handfuls of times where they tried to convince people to go to the hospital. And so I think in as much as like, so you might, uh, someone who's waiting for them at the hospital, a provider in the hospital might have this frame that like this person really shouldn't be here and they're not here for the right reasons. The other frame is like, please go to the hospital. And I think the, the, the reality is unhoused people die all the time of things that they shouldn't die from, right? Hypothermia, sepsis, you know, overdoses, which is a, a whole nother topic. But I, th I think that the reality is people don't want to get care in as much as they recognize that like oftentimes providers don't want them to be there. And there's this there's this term that gets thrown around at least in Providence called the spin cycle, which is like eventually, you know, things get so bad that you go to the hospital you go through this, people will go through an experience oftentimes where they're not afforded a lot of dignity, you know, whether their capacity is stripped of them or whether, you know, I mean, we all know that, that a very stressed emergency room is not always the friendliest place. And that friendliness typically is weighted around certain patients, right? The terms frequent flyer, two hots in a cot, these are terms that oftentimes get used for judgment, unfortunately. And so, and then they end up getting discharged and oftentimes you know, might not have, like you said, right? Like might not have gotten the thing they were seeking, which may have been detox or shelter or hospitalization. And so it's the spin cycle, they get spit back out, you know, 16 hours later. I think uh, some of the terminology or some of the ways that people think that even loads more responsibility on unhoused. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've experienced this quite a bit at the county and every, basically every place I, I've been at where, where there's been some interaction with the unhoused, which is, they choose to be homeless. They want to be homeless. And th that's one of the reasons that it's so difficult to inter interact or outreach to them. 
where do you come down on this idea that some people just choose to be homeless and 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 also maybe what what are some of the causes that you that you think about it are important to think about such a good question um so i was i was listening to one of your other episodes on homelessness with chris walker and alan actually made the really good point that uh Nowhere in the U.S. is the federal minimum wage enough to afford a one-bedroom apartment. Um, and I'll, add, I'll dovetail that with another fact that's like, I think the, the Section 8, which is, for folks who don't know, Section 8 is sort of the long list, the general housing wait list for public housing. Um, in Rhode Island, which is a pretty small state, is like 550 people long, and it's not really moving. Um, and I think what might be a little bit more of our kernel of truth is that people don't want to choose among a series of bleak options. Um, and, you know, oftentimes a, the options might be the street or a shelter or a housing project. And those other places for people might be loaded for so many different reasons. You know, for some people, they've been assaulted at shelters. They've been arrested at shelters. They've been banned from shelters. Shelters are, a lot of shelters are dry. So if you have a drug addiction, you're not a lot, you are forced to go through a withdrawal process if you want to get into shelter. And for a lot of people, if you're, in, and on the flip side, if you're in recovery, for a lot of people, their dealer lives in a shelter and, or, you know, it's a shelter as a, as a source can be a trigger for relapse. And similar to like a particular housing option. Um, and people are constantly fighting not to get bumped to the bottom of the list because they turned down one particular option that might be in a neighborhood where they're not safe or, you know, a variety, whatever variety of things. Wow. Has anyone also separate. That? I'm sorry. Go ahead, Alan. Go for it. Well, I, they also um, make you separate between male and female um, shelters, and also, you know, I'm I'm a real I'm I have dogs, and I really love my dogs. They make you get rid of your dog. They can't take your dog there, and I, 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 that would discourage me. Yeah, and I think the other big piece of the like people choose to be homeless is the idea that people choose not to work, right? Or are choosing not to make money. Um, and that gets into the really sort of important reality of what financial assistance looks like for people, what the minimum wage looks like for people and what, how our economy does or does not work for people. And so a lot of people who are houseless uh, have a, a long-term or permanent disability. And if you don't going in, living on the streets is so hard on the mind and the body that you might end up, you know, someone might end up with one after a few years of being on the street. But if you have permanent disability, there's a couple types, SSI, SSDI, let's just use SSI, for example, which is for people who don't have a significant work history. It's like 800 bucks a month. And the problem is if you've been legally found to have a permanent disability, you're not allowed to work, right? And so it's, you choose between 800 bucks a month or working. And if you choose that $800 a month, I don't know of anybody who can live off that. Um, and so you're forced to try to make money in ways that are illegitimate because if you get a legitimate job, you lose your, your income. Yeah, Tosha, what were you gonna say? Can we swing back? I, I wanna talk more. We, you know, we only have like six, seven minutes left. I wanted to definitely get deeper into um, talking about the unhoused population's ability to access care on their own terms. And um, I wanted to ask if you have specific stories that you'd like to share with us or just it, more about that. Such a good question. Um, I think that 
there are there are so many barriers to care, right? And there are barriers to care for everybody. Um, and I think that oftentimes folks who are houseless also fall their houses often in relationship to the fact that they are at an intersection of drug use, or poverty, immigration status, and all of these things are barriers to care. And furthermore, people get discharged from clinics who have a no-show policy, who have a specific no-show policy because it's really hard to get a ride or because you know, being on the, being on the streets is chaotic. Um, but I think that like, if you can, what it means to be on your own terms means like you get to choose to have a relationship with somebody, right? And to build that relationship over time is something that for a provider is gonna take a lot more effort than a patient who has a ride and who has private insurance and who has easy mm -hmm. access to childcare and who's not carrying a chronic addiction or, or a chronic severe mental illness as a lot of you guys know. And um, I, I guess the argument would be that it's really worthwhile to, to go that, to do that extra work to build those relationships. Do, do you have to deal with, um, I don't know if they're called like uh, value units or anything like that. Do you have productivity uh, quotas in terms of like how many people you're gonna see on street rounds? That's such a good question. Um, it's actually, so I'm applying for jobs right now and I'm in the process of sort of negotiating with these community health centers to try to convince them. And it doesn't take much convincing that this is not only morally, but financially worth their time. And right, and, and we live in this new era where two things have happened. One, telehealth and two, accountable care entities, right? So accountable care entities, it means that if you're part of this community health center's catchment area, they are on the hook for, for any medical costs, right? And as we know, and has been sort of referenced earlier in an earlier podcast, it's really, really expensive to provide medical care for someone who is unhoused. Um, primarily, they end up at the emergency room. Um, oftentimes, they're not presenting until their illness is really advanced and things end up being really expensive. So there's a financial incentive for people to do this extra work. And additionally, now that we have sort of post-COVID telehealth billing, it's a lot more flexible to do outreach visits and bill for them. Um, and so I think you have to, you can't expect a similar level of productivity on an outreach visit, but I think you can still set them and, and they can be financially advantageous. I wanna make sure we get time for uh, Matt to mention any organizations they work with that they think are worth our listeners time. Yes, I would love to plug uh, Ocean State Advocacy, which is, uh, a combination of a harm, redu harm reduction work and mutual aid work for sex workers, often a lot of whom are street-based. Um, you can go to OceanStateAdvocacy.org to learn more. Um, they're doing great work in Rhode Island. Yeah, I, I, I want to um, um, ask you about where you land on um, the Housing First initiatives. There's, there's been early studies, a couple, couple in particular, that have found that it is working, that it can be helpful. Um, and, but, but I, I'm always wary about what are the requirements, um, when, how far do you go with this? You know, what landlords are kind of a little bit worried about, you know, the, the other folks that are living there. Uh, what, do you have any thoughts about that? The housing first efforts? Yeah. I mean, I think everyone deserves to be sheltered, um, regardless of everything else that happens. And I think that the tricky spot is where we expect housing to solve all the other problems. And you need to do housing 
but you also need to provide all the other services that people need. And so if we just do housing only, and that's why I like the term housing first, because if it's housing only, we might not get anywhere. But housing first, absolutely. Um, everyone deserves housing, period. But also housing can be a great step to uh, a stability of life more broadly. That's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. We've been talking about innovative housing programs with Dr. Matt Perry. Hey, Matt, thanks for joining us on this episode. Thank you for having me. Also, thanks go to our co-hosts, Drs. Toshi Yamaguchi and Alan Atkins. If you have questions, suggestions, or comments for the show, you can write us at getpsyched on KUCR at gmail.com. And you can also listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. If you like tonight's show, please follow us, post a review, ask any questions. For, you know, we can always come back and answer all the questions that you provide to us and also to the comments that you make for us. We really appreciate them. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. I've been your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched.